0: The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Walking Dead we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. Slate Plus members get early access to our Walking Dead podcast at 10 p.m. on Sundays following the broadcast on AMC. If you're not a Slate Plus member but want early access, sign up at slate.com/deadplus. Hello, and welcome to Slate's The Walking Dead podcast. I'm Mike Volo, senior producer here in Washington, D.C. Joining me, as always, is the fabulous Chris Wade, video producer for Slate in New York City. Hey, Chris. Oh, hi, Mike. How are you? I'm well, and yourself? I'm wonderful, except for the very bad cold I have, but I'm a professional, so I'm (laughs) powering through. So this episode number 10... The second episode in the second half of season five, it's called simply Them. The cold open is a close-up of a very tearful Maggie, which is understandable. She just lost her sister, Beth, sitting in the woods. I love this. A walker is ambling his way towards her from behind. She very matter-of-factly stands up, turns around, stabs in the head, stops crying while she does this, sits back down and continues on with her tears. The takeaway for me from this scene was grief must pause for survival.
1: (laughs) Nice. I like that. Yeah, and that's kind of the negotiation of this entire episode is where they stand in terms of how they are allowing themselves to be real, functioning, emotional humans versus empty survival machines.
0: Yeah, because also during the cold open, we see Daryl digging in the dirt and eating worms. Sasha is attempting to track a water source. This is a portrait of the group As tired, hungry, dehydrated, out of gas, both literally and figuratively, and really as bereft of resources in general as we've seen them in a very, very long time, and still about, I don't know, 50 or 60 miles, I think they said, out from D.C. Including the most precious resource, hope. (laughs) Well, yeah, that is a recurring theme throughout all of The Walking Dead. Characters convincing other characters that they're going to make it, that there's still hope. And I kind of wish they would stop doing that because they don't know for sure. (laughs) It's a little tedious. You know, I don't know if I'm going to make it till tomorrow. And I'm in a very plush Washington, D.C., pre-zombie apocalypse. I think they shouldn't be so confident.
1: (laughs) They have a direct conversation about that a little later, which we can get to a little later. But I think portrait is the best word for this because there's not a lot of um, substance of this episode. It continues kind of last week's trend maybe for the second half of this season of being a more uh, tone- Peace mm-hmm. than necessarily anything plot-moving happening or story-moving happening. Of course, we had a one large story beat that was stretched out a portrait-like across the canvas of last week's episode, mm-hmm. and this week, there's really not much going on. They walk, they wander, they find some water, it starts to rain, they go to a barn, the barn is attacked, they wake up.
0: Yeah, although I gotta say, I really love this episode In part because the pacing of this episode is kind of metronomically in tune with my constitution. I like the way that we see them simply surviving. We haven't seen that in a long time, surviving at a subsistence level. They are desperately in need of water. They're all dehydrated. They're so fatigued, so much so that there is a mini herd following them down the road that they decide They don't actually want to spend the energy to kill. And they could. There's, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 of them. And so they come up with a plan when they see that there's a steep ravine on the side of the road. They lure the walkers towards the ravine and gently nudge them over the road. I really like that scene. I liked the just like
1: total apathy of it. The total reinforcement that individually these monsters are not too much of a threat and can just kind of be nudged over a cliff with very like simple engagement until, of course, the everybody's grieving at various levels. But the more intensely grieving Sasha goes a little bit crazy and decides that she has anger that she needs to take out on these walkers.
0: Right, and so she takes out her knife and starts stabbing one, and the plan goes to hell, or as Abraham says, the plan is dicked or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And they all take out their weapons and then spend the energy that they didn't want to spend to kill the walkers. That scene and another one is setting up Sasha to be either a wild card or a woman of action, a a leader maybe in the group. Well,
1: that's kind of what you always want or I always want with these moments of characters kind of tail spinning into sadness or reckless grief. And, you know, it's not necessarily directly stated, but the side effect always of recklessness is endangering the people around you. And there's kind of a tense moment between Michonne and Sasha that underscores that. But I'm always looking for people to eventually pull up. From these tailspins, from these nose dives, into grief and hopelessness, to become bigger badasses, I guess, yeah, uh, is what i 'm looking for. I mean, I always find that particular arc satisfying in a character, somebody who forges themselves
0: through pain into a stronger version of the person that they were, and in fact, that scene precedes a scene. In which they're all sitting at the side of the road and a pack of about three or four dogs, very menacing, snarling, mangy dogs, comes out of the woods. They all look a little bit like they are unsure what to do. And Sasha just pulls out a rifle and shoots them. Taking her to this moment where she took action in a way that was responsible.
1: I think it was ambiguous whether or not that could be seen as responsible or still a little wild. I think that the look I would say that the rest of the group gave her with this moment of decisiveness was wariness. (laughs) Uh, But this moment of them all sitting around (laughs) eating dog meat, I just couldn't help but laugh because, you know, all the – every time these moments come along, I'm always wondering, like, how is it that so many people – like this show why am i still watching it how is it that america's favorite cable show is like the watching dirty people sit around and be sad silently hour
0: i would argue there's more to it than just being sad <laughs> i know but there's a lot of that <laughs> if there was ever an episode in which hope was dwindling and the characters could rightfully be despondent this is this is it
1: yeah there were a few subtler moments that i thought were pretty striking Just the shot of the entire group as it stands sitting at the side of the road, I was realizing that it's not that often that the group is seen in its entirety in a single shot. So I thought that that was kind of understatedly striking there. Yeah, I agree. I liked the little arc of our sniveling priest friend. (laughs) Trying to lighten the mood by describing the history of hair shirts. And then eventually, with the chewing of rancid dog meat, finally maybe losing his faith a little bit and throwing his priest collar in the fire.
0: Yeah, he throws his priest collar in the fire that they're using to cook the meat. But before that happens, the scene that you're alluding to, he's walking along the road and trying to play pastor, essentially, to Maggie, who is grieving And tells her that if she ever wants to talk about Beth or her dad, Herschel, that he's there. And Maggie, in what I thought was a really good decision by the writers, calls him out on his cowardice at that moment. You had a job. You were there to save your flock, right? But you didn't. you hit. Don't act like that didn't happen.
1: Yeah, the uh, implicit is made explicit, which I think was particularly powerful. And I think also called him out on him trying to insinuate himself into this role because I think it's the only thing that makes him comfortable or makes him feel like he has value or use. And I think that it's mostly obnoxious to all these people. And it was great to hear somebody
0: actually say that. Yeah, because I mean, it's no secret how I feel about Gabriel. He's one of my least favorite characters because of his cowardice. And I think that still... Though he's been with them now for, I don't know, weeks at least, he has not earned a place among them. And Maggie said that, basically, which I appreciated. And it's going to take some, I think, shaming of him, continued shaming of him before he can rightfully call himself a member of their group, in my opinion.
1: Yes, I agree with that. So let's move into the latter part of this, which I also thought had some good moments even drawn languidly out throughout this tone painting of hopelessness. The moment of Daryl wandering off to the woods to kind of finally express emotions
0: alone. Yeah. I thought was nice. Yeah. He is crying, we assume, for Beth, who he may or may not have loved. Yeah. I mean, loved romantically. Yeah, that whole
1: relationship between Daryl and Carol, that seems a little ineffable, that there's some kind of of deep kindredness between them that is neither romantic nor maybe familial is the best word. But there's a kindred spirit between them, and she she sees him Mm -hmm. and knows that he is trying to confront emotions in a way that is difficult for him to do. And she advises him the way that he needs to do it, and then he goes and does it, and it is cathartic.
0: Yeah. And in fact, she says, I can't allow myself to feel those emotions. I think referencing her daughter and saying, but you can and you should and you need to. And you must. (laughs) Yeah. And he does. And he spots while he's off in the woods there. He spots this barn that they then all take shelter in when it starts to not just rain, but really storm.
1: Yeah. So he sees this barn and then returns to the group to tell them about it. And when he returns, I don't think it was entirely clear, but they're all standing around a cache of fresh water that was left in the middle of the road with a note that says, from a friend. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't entirely clear to me how
0: several wa- jugs of water left in the middle of the road could be put there by surprise. Yeah, it looked like water that was just recently purchased at you know the Safeway or something. It yeah. was in these gallon jugs, and I think some of them were even in maybe 12 or 16-ounce bottles. It looked as though somebody had access to a store of water that was hoarded possibly during the apocalypse. And
1: so they're all standing around this water wondering whether or not it's safety, wondering how much they can trust an anonymous note that says from a friend, eventually Eugene <laughs> being decisive man of action or rather – the one with the weakest will to resist temptation,
0: just goes for it and starts to drink it. He offers himself up as a guinea pig, basically. saying well, you know, quality assurance. Which, here's a question to that. Is that brave or is that weak-willed? Or is that some intersection of both of them? Or is it nihilistic? I wouldn't characterize it as any of those things. I think it's a calculated risk. There is water in the middle of the road. They are dying of thirst. And who would want to poison them at that point? Yeah,
1: and we've talked about this before on the podcast about how the cost-benefit analysis of trust is heavily skewed in weird ways in this world that they find themselves in. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense for them not to trust it just because nothing in their experience is to be trusted, and there is really no reason other than some kind of manipulation or the the vaguest possibility of of compassion, which they really have not seen from anybody else to be gifted this water. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it is suspicious. Yeah. But just as he starts to drink it, uh, it's slapped out of his hand and then it
0: starts raining anyway. Right. You know, for me at this point, it's about, I don't know, three quarters of the way through the episode. Back to the pacing, what occurred to me while I was watching this is the reason I love it. And this is perhaps a bad analogy for you because I don't think you're a sports fan. You don't watch baseball. But it felt to me at this point in the episode, like it was a baseball game that was tied one, one, and we're now in the eighth inning. Mm -hmm. So there was some action that had gone on, but it's for the most part, it's what you call maybe a pitcher's duel in baseball. And you're waiting for something to tip the balance one way or the other. And something always does at the end of a Walking Dead episode, right? Baseball games don't end in a tie is basically what I'm saying. And (laughs) neither does the Walking Dead. Do you remember that graph from like that was
1: going around the Internet from the first or second season that was like a time outline of every Walking Dead episode? Vaguely. I mean, it was basically like first five minutes, nothing. 30 seconds oh my god zombies (laughs) next 25 minutes nothing 30 seconds oh my god zombies next 15 minutes nothing last 30 seconds oh my god zombies yeah well there was more of the nothing in this episode but again as with the last one very well balanced and well paced nothing
0: they seek shelter from the storm in this barn And this is sort of the big climax of the episode, the big walker climax of the episode, when a large herd assembles outside the barn during the storm, and they have to essentially hold it off by standing in front of the doors.
1: While they're sitting in this barn, kind of having a a little discussion about the nature of faith, I really like that speech that Rick gives about his grandpa in World War II confronting every day as if, that is the day that he dies and then after a few years of pretending he was dead he made it out alive and that's the trick of it I think we do what we need to do and then we get to live but no matter what we find in DC I know we'll be okay
0: because this is how we survive. We tell ourselves
1: that we are the walking dead. And I believe for the first time in the whole series, you' mm-hmm. actually exactly what hear the say. phrase, yes. the walking dead, Yeah, which of course I had to drink with. One of my pervasive drinking game rules for any film or television show, the two main rules are whenever you hear the name of the show or movie, and whenever anybody gets thrown through a window.
0: So what did you have to drink when you heard Rick utter? I was watching this at work, so just a cup of tea. Oh. So this whole scene in the barn with the storm and the walkers outside, it then cuts to the morning where the sun is rising and all is peaceful. Maggie and Sasha walk out of the barn to find all of the walkers torn apart by fallen trees and other debris, I almost thought for a moment that we were going to learn that it was a dream somehow. And Sasha says something like, how, how is it that we didn't get killed in this? And Maggie is like, well, we just didn't. What did you make of that? I think what we are
1: supposed to make of it is a moment of cosmic hope for them that there is still luck and chance and good things can happen mm-hmm. in this dismal world. My other first thought When I saw this this scene of carnage, before I think it became a little more explicit that it was in fact natural or maybe like a small (laughs) tornado almost missed the barn or something like that. I thought that maybe whoever had left the water had come and slaughtered the zombies for them, for their protection.
0: Hmm.
1: But I I don't think that that's quite correct. But that was the first thing I thought when they opened the door and, and saw this view of carnage.
0: This is where at the very end of the episode... What I knew was coming—something shocking, something strange. After this plotting survivalism of the previous forty some odd minutes, some dude walks out of the brush. He looks as though he emerged from an LL Bean catalog onto the set of The, the Walking exact same
1: Dead. Thing. It's like very well well dressed. He's got like a puffy vest on.
0: Yeah, he's like, "Hello." He's manicured. He's shaven. It looks as though he's wearing a backpack.
1: Good morning. My name is Aaron I know It's Stranger danger But um I'm a friend I'd like to talk To the person in charge Rick, right? How do you know? Why?
0: I have good news He mysterious in a very good way. Yeah. A friendly,
1: mysterious way, vaguely suspicious. He knows Rick's name, even though Rick isn't there. Yeah. He's either been watching them or is aware of them somehow. It would be really interesting if their reputation precedes them. We were talking last week about not knowing the extent of survival in this world, like just how many people are left alive. Right. It would be interesting to know... If there are so few active groups anymore that knowledge of this group had somehow preceded them, Hmm. I think that that would be interesting. Though, on the other hand, I don't think that this group has left any survivors (laughs) with those that they encounter.
0: Yeah, who would have told him about them. Yeah, exactly. I doubt that that's true, but I think that that would be interesting if they have become legend. The introduction of this character felt to me a little bit like the introduction of Michonne. Very different circumstances, of course. But it was at the very end of an episode, and it was also very mysterious. And it really, really made you want to know, like, oh, what, what is now going on with this person? Mm-hmm. The kind of first contact, if I can use a Star Trek expression, excitement of these introductions makes me feel like there is an entirely new backstory now that we can come to learn about.
1: And a new vector for progress or rather not just having slightly chin scratching meditations on the nature of hope and survival. Even though I agree with you that this was a kind of newer, more interesting take about just watching the group try to negotiate feeling like survival automations, mechanical husks that have no real purpose or direction other than the very basic Automatic mechanisms of survival. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And reminiscent of the first season a little bit for me. Yeah. But you know that I get frustrated when that kind of Walking Dead episode then feels like narrative wheel spinning. Not that they're doing this because the show feels that it needs to, but when they do episodes like this and it feels like they're doing it because the show has nothing else to do. Which I don't think is necessarily here, but it's also that there's no indication that it's going anywhere. So part of me, while I enjoyed this episode, is still on the fence about where this second block of episodes is going to go.
0: Yeah, I understand that critique and that concern, but this episode actually felt like it was very much in place for me because it got back to basics, right? After the whole craziness with Terminus and the craziness with Grady Memorial, it felt to me like this was what The Walking Dead was about from the very beginning. It's about human beings trying to survive in a very hostile world where the undead is in charge. I want to ask you about one more scene that I found a little perplexing. This was when they were walking along the road and came upon a series of abandoned cars and didn't find very much in them. No food, no water, unfortunately. Abraham found some booze that he was drinking throughout the episode, maybe Jim Beam or something. But Maggie finds in the trunk of one of the cars a walker who, it appeared, had been tied at the hands and had a gag around its mouth. And I was wondering, are we to believe that somebody had abducted a person in this trunk? Uh,
1: Perhaps.
0: My other thought was that this had been somebody who had
1: been bit and, you know, one of the various types of people who struggle with coping with the fact that anyone bit will turn was trying to, like, restrain them Mm -hmm. for maybe, like, future treatment or something. Perhaps – It is a callback to how Beth was taken from the side of the road, specifically because Maggie finds her, even though I don't think Maggie had any direct relationship with watching that car Mm -hmm. that had Beth in it speed away, Yeah. Uh, nor do we necessarily know that Beth was bound and gagged in the back of it. It was a kind of weird, surreal scene where both of them didn't really know how to deal with it. I liked that impulse of Maggie just being like, I just don't have the energy physically or emotionally to cope with what I'm looking at and just, like, walks away.
0: Yeah, she sh- well, she closes the trunk, but then she hears some banging, which reminded me of that scene in Goodfellas when, yeah. <laughs> when they attempt to kill that made man and then are driving and he's still banging alive in the yeah. trunk. And then Joe Pesci opens the trunk and then just starts stabbing him with a knife to finish him off. So it reminded me a little bit of that because you hear the banging in the trunk and somehow Maggie couldn't deal with that. And so she came back over and tried to open the trunk to finish off the walker, couldn't get the trunk open and was kind of losing her composure. And then Glenn came and finally opened the trunk. Yeah, it was a very weird scene because I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to take away from it. It was the bound and gagged walker, the emotional deterioration of Maggie glenn stepping in to save her from herself i think she was about to actually shoot the trunk open which would have been a stupid move it was a very weird scene
1: yeah but that's like kind of the thing that made this episode interesting or in that you know painterly quality that we were talking about at the beginning Mm -hmm. where usually even when walking dead episodes do these little vignettes they relate into the larger like movement of the of the episode or like they would find something in that trunk that then went and like related back to where they were going or what they were doing or would be useful or something. But it it was nice in the context of what this episode was trying to do to just have like this little moment of violent, upsetting, meaninglessness. The various symbolic implications are heavy.
0: Well, I'm really excited for the next episode. I can't wait to see what's going on with this guy, Aaron, and who his people are and why he's still shopping out of catalogs. Yeah, they're holed up in a Costco. Yeah.
1: (laughs) One final question. Um, I kind of assumed when we saw that from a friend, Stash of Water, that it was from Morgan, who we again saw at the end of last season, is tracking the group to some extent. I assume that his involvement at the beginning of this season would be one of the inciting incidents for whatever the next little narrative arc is, but we still really haven't seen him here, Mm -hmm. and uh, it was a bit of a little misdirection for me to see this mysterious gift and then have the implication that it comes from another new character and not
0: the character that we had seen before. Well, we could conjecture that if, in fact, this Aaron situation doesn't work out for the group, which, let's face it, it won't, right? I mean... Given the, the group's track record, whoever this Aaron guy is... He should run. Yeah, he
1: should run from them <laughs> because he will get his group involved with that group and his group will all end up dead.
0: Yeah, go back to Maine, dude. Go hide out in your L.L. <laughs> Bean store because they are going to destroy you. Yeah. Yeah, well, so we can assume maybe that, or at least we can guess, that if they do run into a bad situation with Aaron and company, then perhaps Morgan will be their savior. Perhaps. Look forward to the next episode, Chris. As always, thank you so much for listening. And thanks to everyone who is a Slate Plus member. If you are not, please join at slate.com slash dead plus. That's slate.com slash dead plus. I will take the dead plus package. That's the uh, premium death. (laughs) The uh, death subscription plan, please. Yes, you get fancier pillows and a cushier cloud to sleep on. (laughs) A Higher grade
1: halo and harp, and I just want to say because I know you are not on the Twitter and I don't think I have mentioned my handle before. If you have any questions, criticisms, responses, threads that we should pick up, ideas for topics for future episodes of the show, anything that you want to yell at me about, I am on
0: Twitter constantly at at say what again. Constantly, so you're, constantly. you're on Twitter right now as we're speaking no that's so rude but
1: almost i mean look i'm on trains a lot (laughs) when i'm on a train i am
0: reading a backlog of tweets thanks so much we'll talk to you next week